Well, for the last three and a half weeks, I have had an image that has dominated my mind and my thoughts. And the image, I tend to be an image guy. I think in images. Um, I know not everybody does. Some people think in propositions. I, I think in terms of images. But the image that, that kept coming to my mind is, is the image of a burning torch. And that image was placed in my mind based upon something that Charles Spurgeon once said. For those of you who aren't familiar with Charles Spurgeon, he was he's pretty much universally regarded as the prince of preachers or the greatest preacher to have ever lived. Uh, he, is, uh, he was in England in the 1800s. And this is what he said. He said, People come to watch me burn. He knew that why people were coming to listen to his preaching, because they were coming to watch him burn. And he went on to say, they take their flickering little torches and they stick them in mine. And then they go out and burn for Jesus for for an entire week, only to come back again and to dip their their torch once again in his. It's an amazing image that people come to watch me burn, is what he said. To stick their torches in the light and to go out and, and burn for Christ for yet another week. I love that image. It's, a, it's an image that just kind of keeps me praying in a particular direction. And that direction is that God would not just continue to build and ignite a torch in my own life, that people can come from Sunday to Sunday or Saturday to Saturday and, and dip their torch in the lights and go out with a greater sense of zeal and passion to confront the world and live for Jesus out in the world. But to be a part of a congregation that has a dream of having each of their torches lit, not flickering, but lit, so that those outside the church can see something that burns that's different. And it's that impulse to have something different that we currently have that has driven me to this particular a set of messages on the Spirit. Um, it is a very personal quest for me. It is not an intellectual quest simply to know more, although it does include the intellect, because I do want to know everything that the Spirit of the living God has revealed about himself in the Bible. But it's more than just an intellectual pursuit. It's understanding it. And then to go on this quest to have as much of God's Spirit light God's people, the torch, on fire as possible. That is to have the spirit of the living God, the presence that God has given to us, the third member of the Trinity, to have him fill God's church in our affections, our thoughts, our conversations, our relationships, our jobs, our careers, whether we're coaching Little League Baseball or we're out on the track or in the classroom or sewing patches on our kids' jeans to, to have God fill his people. That has been a burning desire of my heart. It is a personal quest that I hope each of you has a, a hunger to come on with me. That started this particular journey on the study of the Spirit. So far, in terms of recap, we have looked at the first part of Romans chapter 8, what the Spirit does in and to us. As Paul teaches us in Romans 8, that the Spirit, when it comes in, it becomes the new law of life that separates or it sets us free from the law of sin and death. It, that we live by an internal principle, that we can't live by laws written in words. We have to live by something that ignites a new desire and a new passion, a new heart. And that is what the Spirit does. It infuses us with a new nature, with new desire, so that God's heart becomes our heart, that God's thoughts become our thoughts, God's zeal becomes our zeal. That is 
fundamentally, Christianity is a religion of the heart. That's something that the Spirit alone can do. Something else we learned in that Romans passage is that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're actually God's kids as we cry out, Abba, Father. It's an instinctive voice of faith crying out because the Spirit is in us. And it, it attests to the fact that we're actually God's kids and assures us of our salvation. So that's what we've studied in, in, in Romans is what the Spirit does to and in us. And then last week was a bit of a tangent, coming back from vacation, and I simply wanted to show, and if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to it online, not because it's some masterpiece, but because I think it's filled with, um, with heart. And that is, tried to show that where the people of God compromise with the world, where you compromise your life with the world, fill it with other things, there is a hindrance to the fullness of God's spirit in the church. And it's not in principle, but in terms of the manifestation of the fullness of the Spirit's presence, we hinder it, we quench it or grieve it when we compromise with the world. So the kind of the bottom line of last week is that, you know what, we've got to throw that stuff to the curb of life. Whatever it is, whatever obstacle, whatever besets you, whatever hinders the fullness of God from taking over this church has to be, and your life has to be jettisoned, it has to be cast to the curb of life that we might have a more fervent, a fervent fullness of God's presence, once again lighting the torch of his people. So that's where we've been in terms of the Spirit. Now I want to change directions a little bit, and I want to go on a little bit of a different track with relation to the Spirit, and that is the Spirit and mission. Spirit and mission. That might sound boring to you, but I hope by the time I get to the end of this particular message, you, you will see that if you feel that the Spirit and mission is boring, then it reveals the state of an indifferent and not a God-filled heart. Spirit and mission. When we talk about mission, we're talking about basically the vision statement of God. Believe it or not, he does have a mission statement. It is in the scripture. And it can be put in various ways. Um, you can put it in Matthew 28 categories of, of the God's intent mission on planet Earth. History and redemption is to make disciples of all nations to the glory of his name. That is, sums up the vision of God in all of history. Or we could sum it up in the way that we sum it up, and that is to spread a passion for the supremacy of Jesus through the ministry of the gospel to all people. That's another way of stating the same thing. Or you can just say that God's main goal in everything is to magnify himself through the, through the salvation of men and women. Sinful men and women. That is God's purpose to magnify himself in the salvation of sinful men and women. That's his purpose that dominates everything. That is the fundamental purpose of the church and of all of our lives, to live mission. So what I want to do to that end is I would like to draw out five different themes out of the book of Acts that relate directly the spirit to this idea of mission, what God has been and is doing and will bring to completion. Five of those. And the aim of these, these five reflections or thematic messages through the book of Acts, the aim is to intensify our passion and resolve, to intensify our passion and resolve to live God's mission. Not simply to understand it or to speak about it, to read about it, or put it on a fancy banner in front of the church, but to live mission. God designed us and called us and sent his son to die for us so that we might live 
mission in our daily life, that it might be the compelling desire to live God's mission of bringing salvation to men to the glory of God. That is mission. We believe it's relevant because it is the perspective of the leaders of our church. This is a particular weakness of this congregation. It's not a weakness of everybody in the congregation. Some people here have a heart and a passion for living the mission. But by and large, the passion isn't intense and the resolve is not as intense as it could or should be. So the question that we have wrestled with as as a leadership and I've wrestled with in my own mind, I've talked to Dan Overby and John Barry about us, how do you stoke the fires of this mission spirit so that God's people don't feel like it's some kind of unfortunate obligation to lift the mission, but it's, it's this inner compulsion to do mission, to live mission. Because I was, I grew up much thinking that the mission was an unfortunate obligation that I often felt guilty for. And yet, as I understand the New Testament in particular, what I'm about to say is that it wasn't an unfortunate obligation for the early church. It was a compelling passion that drove them to live out mission in daily life wherever they lived. How do you stoke that? How do you stoke the fires of passion? How can I, how can I, as a preacher, nurture in our own congregation a sense that when you go back to work tomorrow, you're going to live mission? How is it that we nurture a spirit that when you go onto the ball field with your little league team, that you're going to live mission? And how can, how can we nurture a spirit that when you go to school or in class, you live mission, that you want to live it? Do we guilt people into it? Do we reorganize, restructure, come up with some nifty logo that incites a bit of passion? What stokes God's people to live mission with passion and resolve? That's the question. You know what? The answer is simple and yet often neglected. The only thing that is going to stoke a deeper, more intense passion for mission, living mission, and resolve is the spirit of living God. That's it. God has to move in our hearts, in our congregation. It has to be a work of grace, of his spirit, once again, filling his people. It just kind of brought me back as I was wrestling through it, back to the very beginning, thinking through what is it that stoked the fires of the early church? What set it on fire? What is it that caused it to rage Rage like a consuming, out-of-control forest fire. And the answer is simply this, this spirit. What I'd like to say to us and show to us is that the spirit of the living God is fundamentally and comprehensively mission-driven. You say that again. That's the only point of this message, that the spirit of the living God is fundamentally and comprehensively Mission-driven or mission-oriented. There's nothing that the Spirit does that is not governed by or moving in the direction of mission. Everything he does is mission-driven, mission-oriented. It was true in the life of the church, and it was, as I'm going to show you, also true in the life of Jesus himself. In the life of the church... We have here in Acts, I'm just going to point out a couple of things. This isn't a deep exegesis, by the way. I kind of want to give you the big picture, and hopefully it inspires a sense of that's what we need. That's what, I, that's what my aim is. 
You have in this opening chapter of, of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, you have Jesus right before he leaves. He gathers his disciples together, kind of like a group huddle, and he says this. He lays out the essential mission, as I've already articulated, but it's in a slightly different form. Verse 8, he says, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In this simple verse is outlined the various aspects of Jesus' mission for the church and for us, for all time, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. That is, it scopes out the geographical limits or scope of the mission, and that is all of planet Earth. Every tribe that inhabits this globe we call planet Earth is to hear. There is a scope. To the ends of the earth. All of the planet is to hear about what God has done through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the geographical scope. It also, here in verse 8, talks about the nature of the mission, namely that we are to be witnesses, that is, people who testify to the fact that God has accomplished an amazing, once-for-all salvation for men and women, sinful men and women, through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's the nature of the mission. And note, it's fundamentally verbal. It's a proclamation. It doesn't mean we don't witness or testify to the cross and resurrection through our life. We do, but it is primarily verbal. So it is, there you have the geographical scope, the entire planet. You have the nature of the mission, which is to testify to the resurrection and the death of Jesus. And then it also gives to us the person who's going to make it happen, or should I say the divine person who's going to make this mission happen, namely the spirit of the living God. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses. In other words, spirit, the spirit of the living God, the third member of the triune Godhead, is going to be the one that moves this thing forward. So the God's people wait for it. They wait for it, ten days. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, you read about that time. This is an amazing event in the history of the Bible in which God gives his spirit to his church. Now, I want you to notice this church was a small, fledgling, 100 plus, 120 souls. That's it. You know, they didn't have any marketing. They didn't have any strategic plan. They didn't have a building per se. They didn't have leadership conferences. They didn't have programmed ideas as to how they were going to do it. They simply were in this upper room praying when it says, chapter 2, verse 1, and this is what ignites it. Is, and you know this, but just being reminded of it, of it is, is I, I hope, powerful. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. And in light of the fact that the nature of the mission is primarily verbal, it's not surprising to me that the Spirit would come in form of speech or tongues. And that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues, which I think is a sign that this will go to every tribe and tongue and nation. It's going to go through the world and begin to speak in other languages and the Spirit, as the Spirit enabled them. Here in these four verses begins what we read about in the rest of the book of Acts, to be an avalanche of mission activity. 
So what we see happen in the history of this early church, based upon the giving of God's Spirit, of God's Spirit filling his people, we see the church carrying forth this mission, breaking through religious strongholds, crashing through walls of, of hardened paganism. We find them not only persevering, but growing through volleys of persecution and people dying and being put in prison. So much so that within one generation, a single generation, what started off with 120 people extends to much of, if not all of, the entire Roman Empire. In other words, within one single generation, the peoples within the Roman Empire have heard about Jesus. That is a phenomenal burn rate. That's, a, that's, that's the kind of mission fire that can only be explained by one thing. Only one thing is God's Spirit inhabiting His people. In other words, if I was to put it differently, where God's Spirit fills the church, there is an intrinsic mission zeal that fills the church. Where the Spirit of the Lord God of heaven is, is lacking in the church, that is the manifestation of his presence and his power, then there's a complete drought of mission. There is a drying up of mission motive. People feel like they have to, but they don't want to. That is a sign that the Spirit is not filling the individual or the corporate body when there is this languished attitude towards the mission which the early church kind of broke forth with through barriers and crashing through walls and bringing the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus all the way to the extent of the, the outer edges of the Roman Empire. So it's the Spirit of the living God who did that. He's the one who produced this mission wave. The only one who can rekindle and renew. The only one who can really stoke the fires of the heart so that it's not a dry obligation but a burning zeal and passion to live mission each day, wherever you are, wherever I am. It's not only, not only is the Spirit fundamentally and comprehensively mission-oriented in the church as he moves her forward and drives her, but I also want you to notice, and this is the tie between Acts and Luke, I want you to notice that Jesus' mission himself, his own life, was driven by the same Spirit given to the church I want to draw your attention to something at the very beginning of the book of Acts. You're going to have to kind of follow me mentally here. But if you follow me, then I think you'll see some profound fruit at the end of this. You'll notice how the author of Acts starts his little work, his little book of, of 28 or so chapters. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that's a pretty amazing opening line for a book because it tells us two things. One... The guy who wrote this book wrote a prequel. That is, this is part two. He wrote something that came before this, another part of the story that precedes this one. That was the former book, and that is the Gospel of Luke. If you open to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that he mentions the same person. He writes for the same person. In chapter 4, he says, that, um, that he is to write in an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. It's the same person. This Luke is his prequel, and Acts is the sequel. 
The second thing you have to notice, back to Acts chapter 1, is that he talks about what his former work was about. He said, in my former book, that is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do, giving the clear implication that the Gospel of Luke, which goes from the, before the birth of Jesus to the resurrection, is just what Jesus began to do, giving the implication that what happens in the book of Acts is what Jesus now continues to do, but through his spirit living in his church. In other words, Luke, Acts tell one singular story, not two stories. It's one story. It continues to go on. Jesus is still doing in Acts, though he has gone physically, and I think you can continue on, because I think one of the reasons Acts ends so abruptly is to give the sense that Jesus is still doing his work. He's doing it today in the 21st century. Luke is about what Jesus began to do. Acts is what Jesus continued to do in and through the Spirit living in his church. It's a singular story. And when you, and by the way, if I can say this, I hope I don't ruin anybody's faith, but I think when the church fathers gathered together these books and put them in a certain order, I think they were unwise in separating Luke from Acts. If I could unbind my Bible and I could take Luke and put it right next to Acts, I would, because they were meant to be read as one. I would have it go Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke, Acts. So you read it all at once. And by the way, the order of the books in the Bible are not a matter of inspiration. The books themselves are, but not the order. There are different orders based upon different languages. The Hebrew Old Testament, for example, has a different order of books than the English Old Testament. Same books, same word, but just in different order. I would cut it out, and I would put it right before Acts. Because when you do, when you read Luke right into Acts, one of the things that will pop out at you is the link between the ministry of Jesus and the Spirit and the ministry of the church and the Spirit. Or let me... Let me uh, let me, let me make this hopefully a little bit clearer. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, according to Luke chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 21, it began when Jesus was baptized in the water, coming up out of the water, the Spirit of the living God descended upon him. I mean, I read this, and I, I can't help but make the correlation that the writer is using the same brush strokes on Jesus' life that he does in the church's life. So when you read about the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit descending on Jesus, you read this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, Jesus was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him. You come to the book of Acts, the people are doing what when the Spirit of God descends? They are praying. Jesus was praying in Luke when the Spirit came. And here in Acts chapter 2, the people are praying when the Spirit descends. And that text tells us that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, just as he descends on the church in Acts chapter 2 in some physical form. And just as the giving of the Spirit in Acts initiates the mission and launching of the church, so we find in Luke that the giving of the Spirit to Jesus was the beginning of his ministry and, if you will, his mission. It says in verse 23 of chapter 3 of Luke, it says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry at the moment of baptism. So I don't know if you see the correlation, but Jesus' mission 
For all intents and purposes, his ministry of power began when the Spirit of God descended upon him. In the same way that the same Spirit of God is then given and descends upon the church. Jesus lives and ministers in the power of the Spirit. The church lives and ministers in the power of the Spirit. Jesus was praying when the Spirit was given. The church was praying when the Spirit was given. And then what comes out of that movement is, is, is strikingly similar. Jesus goes forth speaking words of authority and power. In the book of Acts, after the Spirit's given, Peter and James and John go forward speaking in authority words of power. And just as when the Spirit comes upon Jesus, he now goes forward and does works and miracles, powers of the kingdom, we find the same Spirit, after given to the church, produces these miracles, these these evidences of the power of God's kingdom present in his church. So the people are raised from the dead, people are healed, demons are cast out, not just by apostles, but by ordinary guys like, like Philip. In other words, the Spirit's producing the same thing in the disciples that it did in Jesus. Now you might say, wait, Jesus was God, okay? He didn't need the Spirit's help. To which I'd say, yes, you're right in one sense. But in another sense, during his earthly, humble ministry, Jesus was entirely human, as well as entirely God. So he needed to depend upon God and the power of God. So what he did, he did in the power of the Spirit. It was the Spirit that led and guided Jesus in his work. And in the end, it was the Spirit that enabled him to endure the cross. So if Jesus needed the Spirit to accomplish his mission, it stands to reason that the church needs the Spirit also to accomplish and live out this mission. And it's, I mean, it's somewhat profound to me to think that the same Spirit that, if you will, fell down upon Jesus and launched him towards the cross to accomplish salvation for us. It's the same spirit that was given to us and is still present with us right now. Same spirit given to Jesus is now. And I believe the Luke Acts, both of those, is meant to show. It's meant to show that the same spirit that descended on Jesus, the same spirit that descended on the church. And put that together, the spirit, once again, is fundamentally and comprehensively mission-driven. He wasn't the life of Jesus. He wasn't the life of the church. The only thing at the end of the day that is going to rekindle and restoke within God's people a sense of holy passion to live our lives Without compromise, so that God's mission becomes a heartthrob of the church, something we believe in, something we live for. Not just an unfortunate obligation, but a driving and joyful passion. It's the Spirit of God alone and a movement of Him in the church that can bring that back. That is it, period. The Spirit of the living God is fundamentally and comprehensively mission-oriented. And when we see that, that kind of acts as a, as a thermometer for us, as well as a kind of a way forward. I mean, I just think about the fact that there's this great mission that the Father above authored, God the Son accomplished, but then God the Holy Spirit then executes through us. And he's the only one who can do that. I think there's tremendous implication for us 
with that. In terms of my wrestling, our wrestling, how do you light the torch? On the one hand, it does tell us that if, if it is indeed true, the Spirit drove Jesus on the mission, the Spirit drives the church on the mission. He compels it, he catalyzes it, he controls it, he orchestrates it, he ignites it, he moves it forward. But if that's true, if that's true, then we can kind of tell where we're at with the Lord just by looking at how passionate we are about the mission of God. If your life is full of the Spirit, I believe, I believe that evangelism is not going to be some kind of unfortunate obligation. It is going to be an uncontainable necessity in your life. Praying for lost people around you is no longer going to be this kind of mournful duty, but it's going to be this this explosive, uh, irrepressible desire to pray because you actually care for the eternal souls of people around you. That when God's people are filled with the Spirit, it is, it's, almost, it's natural for them to be burdened and concerned about the people who are ministering or, or, or working in the cubicle next to them to care for their souls and to look for and to take any and every opportunity to tell them about what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ in atoning for sin and giving life. That will be a sign that God's Spirit is alive and well in the church when it's, not, when it's not an unfortunate obligation, but it is a driving hunger, desire, a passion, a torch to actually tell about Jesus and to live Jesus and make mission life, not just something that we have to do, but something that we want to do. But that also kind of flips around and you can say, well, so then where there is no, where there is no driving passion, or there's this kind of language, I really don't care, then it says a lot about the state of the church. That indeed, if spirit is mission-oriented fundamentally in everything, then if we're not spirit or mission-minded, then we're really grieving the spirit of the living God. I don't care how electrifying the worship might be, how ornate the church might be, or how eloquent the pastor or preacher might be. If there is no heart for the mission of God, the church is dead. The church is dead if there is no flicker for the mission of God. That, I don't know where you're at. You have to kind of ask yourself the question, do I, do I really care? Do I, do I really care about the mission of God of making fully formed disciples to the glory of Christ. Do I really care? That's going to be a sign to you how you're doing with the Lord right now. Do you really care? Do you find yourself praying because you're so burdened for people living around you who don't have a chance to stand before the Lord without Jesus with them? Do you care? And if you do, that's that's a sign of the Spirit working on your desires to desire what God desires. That's part of the Spirit's work in the heart is to Give, God's, give us God's zeal and God's heart and God's mind and God's, God's mission. And that's what the Spirit does. If, if you do care, if you do care, that's a sign of the Spirit living in you. If not, then it's time to kind of move forward. And because, because I, as I said, this, this, this truth also kind of gives us a way forward, a way of hope. And that is to once again recognize that the only way that we're going to recover, the only way that this church is going to discover that intensified passion and resolve to live mission each day is when we humble ourselves before the Lord God of heaven saying, we need 
more of your spirit in this church, and we are languishing without you. We need you to once again light the fires. That's, that's the way forward. That's actually hopeful for me, to know that, that when God's people humble themselves and when they pray and they seek the face of God, that we, we have to believe and trust that God indeed will answer. And God can, can bring new life to dead bones. And God can once again light the torch of your life and of our body and make a tremendous and its impact on, on the world in which, which we live. I believe the answer is the spirit of the living God. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, that is, a, that is a prayer of mine. It is a prayer that this church joining together, and, and it sounds to me from what I've heard from other pastors, others are sensing the same movement of a hunger and a desire for more than is currently here namely a movement of God's Spirit, that we would be caught up in the current of what he's doing and we would live mission. Because the Spirit is like a river. It is moving through time and history and it will empty into the ocean of eternity. And as it makes its way through time and history, it will scoop up people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and deliver them into the ocean of the new heavens and the new earth. That's the current of what the Spirit does. And I, we should want to be caught up in that current and be a part of living God's mission wherever we are it should be a passion of ours you know i have i have a i have a i look forward to the day and i hope by the by the grace of god i see this day i look forward to a day when we gather together for worship on a saturday night or a sunday morning totally and completely stoked excited energized passionate about what we experienced god doing in our lives the past week in driving back the borders of darkness and seeing the towers of, 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 and the dominions of, of Satan fall and to see it beaten back and to know we saw the power of God move and then come together and celebrate and praise the Lord for all he had done during the week. It becomes kind of this explosion of worship celebrating the fact that God is mighty and God does move in his people. We'll be like soldiers after an amazing battle, gathering together to celebrate the defeat of the enemy as we have seen and we've experienced. And God has used us to liberate souls that are right now captured by the grip of the evil and to see the cross and the power of the cross unleash and ungrip them or untangle them from his clutches. That will be an awesome day to gather together each week and to know God moved this week and I just got to worship him. That's, that's, that's the kind of mission life I want to live and I hope it's the kind of mission life that you want to live as well, to see God mighty in our lives, driving back the enemy and liberating souls and saving people to the glory of God. It's an amazing mission if you get your head and your heart around it. Spirit of the living God, I want to ask that you would grant us um, a hunger, a thirst. I want to ask that you would give us an impulsive prayer, a longing, a longing for you once again to inhabit your church in an obvious, undeniable way. That you would move in the hearts of your people once again to see that the Spirit of the living God is, one said it time and time again, not an abstraction or an idea, but the living person of God and living in his people. I pray that you would... Give us a sense of humility and also faith that indeed that day can come. And that we would, in the words of one of the Old Testament books, that we would humble ourselves and we would pray and we would seek your face. 
turn away from our wicked ways and see, see once again the glory of your Spirit inhabit and dwell this people, your people. For the sake of your great mission, Lord God, we pray that you would make this a reality in each of our lives. If we need to repent, we pray that we would repent. If we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge our lack of thirst and hunger, then may we do so. Come to you open-handed. We want to see God, you move in power and in might. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.